I'd like to talk about your own feelings of being vocal when other people decide to be silent, of lecturing about a subject that has impacted all of us, but it's not a subject that makes us feel good, that makes us feel broken, about doing something which is profound. Yesterday on MTV, I did an episode with the owners of Alias. One of them is from Ireland. She lives here. Last, or two nights ago, I spoke to Fadi Karam, a linguist of sorts, a storyteller. He's a Lebanese who's living in Dublin by choice. You're here, and I think largely by choice. Yeah. You could be in Ireland. Actually, right. maybe you should be in Ireland, <laughs> but you're here. That's a rational decision to make. <laughs> right. So this irrational decision that I share with you, let's go there before we talk about yeah. rational decisions in economics. What keeps you here at this moment when there's advice to leave from all corners? Okay, that's a very difficult question to answer, actually. Uh, um, well, uh, for starters, I'm not well known for making the smartest, smartest decisions <laughs> in life. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but, but, but uh, jokes aside, uh, uh, in relative terms, compared to where I was and what I was doing when I was in Ireland or elsewhere... Uh, there is, despite the doom and gloom going on here, and quite rightfully so, uh, there is still a much bigger sense of purpose to me being here. And that's from a purely selfish perspective. I'm under no illusion that me being here is in any way impactful. <laughs> but from a purely personal viewpoint, uh, I feel that me being here makes more sense uh, as compared to being in Ireland or anywhere else. Uh, I feel that I'm a bit more relevant, I guess. I'm doing something more relevant. Um, and it's precisely because we're in this sort of... Uh, now, people talk about the post-crisis uh, mm. Lebanon, but we're still in the middle of a crisis. So it's precisely because we're in the middle of a crisis, and a financial crisis for that matter, that me... Uh, finance, uh, professor, a teacher, a researcher, being here makes more sense to me, makes a lot of sense to me. You're hinting at meaning, that you yeah. feel more meaningful here than yeah. elsewhere. I'd like to touch on this a bit before we get into the heavier yeah. subjects. And this is actually a quite heavy subject yeah. in, on its own. I feel the exact same way. Mm. Now, I'm going to guess you work in a career that maybe you've digested it to the point that your advice is not heard enough, or at least that you're aware of your own limitations here. Absolutely. And this comes with the territory that you could be advocating something with full acknowledgement that little to no serious considerations are taken. Absolutely. Yet it's more meaningful here. Yeah. So this issue of finding purpose in a place that doesn't reciprocate, doesn't yeah. reciprocate it. Yeah. What, what is the, if I could ask you that kind of question why do you choose a place that doesn't reciprocate why do i choose a place that doesn't reciprocate uh because it's not static in the sense that just because it doesn't reciprocate right now bearing in mind that i'm a nobody you're not <laughs> yeah. a nobody no yeah. no no I'm I'm, I'm 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 comfortable with that there's nothing wrong with it uh, i'll remove this from the episode <laughs> You should be the head of Muatino Muatina. You're not a nobody. No, on the, on the contrary, you're 
I think you'd be a sensible <laughs> political figure had you wanted to be one. That's going to be out, don't yeah. you? <laughs> or I can keep it in if you guys want it. That's up to you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the thing is that... Now, am I... It, it really depends on whether or not you're assuming that things are going to stay that way forever. Uh, I'm under no illusion that things are going to change for the foreseeable future. That's for sure. Uh, that being said, uh, I mean, because it's such an unpredictable country, because things dramatically change in such a short period of time when you least expect it, then you just have to anticipate it and uh, hold still until that appropriate moment happens where perhaps you can make some impact, however little or trivial that impact is. So it's really windows of opportunity that come and go. Yes, and they're relatively small windows in all honesty, uh, and they can be quite rare windows. uh, But, you know, we, we try to make the best of it. So I'm going to segue into that subject a little later because I live in that space too. Mm. And I think that's the reason why I do the same thing. I look for those opportunities, even if they take years and years to come. Yeah. So we'll get to that later. And we'll obviously talk about economics and finance in that, in that domain. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, though, about what's happening in the region and how you see it impacting Lebanon, at least on a financial economic level. We don't have to talk about politics if you don't want to on on this subject, but I think they're naturally tied into each other anyway. Yes, of course. There is a word that came to me when I was studying. I did my master's degree some 20 years ago. And funny enough, one of the research papers was on what's happening right now, albeit 20 years ago. Yeah. So that kind of, and the word was de-development. I remember that. It stuck with me. The de-development of the Gaza Strip. If there's any parallel happening, do you sense that Lebanon is going through the de-development of our own economy too? Absolutely. Uh, And Lebanon has been going through that de-development. Now, it has been going through that for even before the crisis showed its ugly face. Uh, It has been a slow and steady process uh, that was going on since the 90s at the very least uh, of this sort of very slow decay, whereby the country is not really realizing uh, the potential that it can realize, uh, but but it really exposed its very ugly face and accelerated from 2019 onwards, uh, where you're seeing very overt signs of, uh, not. I'm not only talking here about the financial and economic collapse, mm. but also the institutional decay uh, and even the decay of the very basic infrastructure in the country. I mean, you could point your finger at any random thing in the country and you could say, well, that's not working. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it's very, it's very rare that you could point your finger at something and say, okay, that's still somewhat functioning. It's, It's, it's quite rare. I mean, even the crown jewels that we used to take a lot of pride in, which mm-hmm. is education, uh, healthcare, uh, certain services, even those are decaying right now, even though these were the only things that pre-crisis we could be somewhat uh, not proud of because still nowhere close to where they ca- they could have been, but at least content with that they're not something to be at least ashamed of. Uh but right now, what we're seeing is complete decay. Um, 
further exacerbated by uh, the tragedy that is going on in Gaza. And one would have to be delusional to think that under any circumstance, however favorable the politics are in Lebanon, that what's happening in Gaza would not spill over to Lebanon negatively. Now, let's go back to reality. Where Mm. where do we live in right now? Mm. We live in a post-crisis economy where people were under the illusion and, 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 and following the crisis in the last year or so, you could hear people somewhat, some, many people were celebrating this false sense of stability, that the economy somewhat stabilized and normalized, that things are somewhat back to normal. Superficial things that like the e- tourism sector. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Pre-crisis, you had these three pillars, which were tourism, hmm. banks, yeah. and uh, remittances. Yeah. Uh, right now, banks are no longer there. You're left with tourism and remittances. Right. But even those are being tested right now, particularly yeah. on the tourism front. So the tragedy in Gaza and the way it spilled over to Lebanon and continues to spill over to Lebanon is challenging that very foundation uh, of this post-collapse uh, pseudo-economy, mm-hmm. I would say, because even calling it an economy is too dignified uh, uh, because This economy was characterized by betting on, uh, first of all, it's seasonal in nature. You're depending on tourism to a large extent, and therefore these are seasonal inflows that are very heavily vulnerable to uh, the geopolitical environment that we are in. And and that actually uh, brings us to a broader question as to what kind of economy Lebanon needs Considering uh, the context that it operates in, mm-hmm. and and ideally the kind of economy that you want is one that depends on sectors that are not heavily vulnerable to geopolitics, which is the exact opposite of what Lebanon was since the 1990s, because banks and financial services in general are very heavily sensitive to geopolitics. They're in fact, you know, it's con- having a financial sector, let's say, or a financial oriented economy is heavily contingent on having favorable geopolitics, which, you know, whether we like it or not, we never had and we will not have for the foreseeable future. Uh, um, uh, Also, when it comes to tourism, it's heavily contingent on having a geopolitical environment that at least gives some sense of physical stability, physical safety, which which clearly right now is being challenged. So... uh, the tragedy in Gaza is actually uh, challenging this notion that uh, Lebanon's economy has stabilized and it's actually exposing the extent to which this post-collapse economy is vulnerable. Uh, you know, listening to you over now years of getting to know you, it's like a masterclass. And Lebanese uh, collapse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you're you're very articulate in explaining how you see an what could be almost an impossible scenario, which is a relatively calm Lebanon with a relatively reformed economy, given the immense geopolitical weight on a mm. on a good day. Yeah. So that kind of stagnation, or let's maybe it's, maybe the word paralysis is used too much in political. Issues, but I think it does have its tentacles in economics too. That the economy, at best, is paralyzed. Oh, it it certainly is paralyzed. Right. It 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 it, it, it was basically on life support after the collapse. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, it was only a matter of time after which it would implode. Now, if, if you asked me that question prior to what's going on in Gaza, I would have told you that perhaps this status quo of uh, economic stagnation mm. uh, that is heavily dependent on tourism and uh, tourism, or in quote-unquote tourism, because it's mostly actually Lebanese uh, diaspora and, yeah. visiting their exactly. families uh, and remittances, could have persisted for several years, if not more. Had uh, there been no regional... Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, but right now... Uh, and as tragic as it is, you know, it's laying bare the extent to which this uh, economy, which could have survived, uh, again, on life support for several years, how vulnerable it is, basically. It, it cannot survive for long. Because let's be very clear, even if suddenly uh, the war on Gaza stops, mm. uh, we are still vulnerable to, uh, to any potential geopolitical shock uh, that might happen. And uh, we know this region well enough to know that it's going to happen more frequently than we want it to. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and thus, you know, uh, I would revise my initial thesis that the status quo could survive for several years. And honestly, that was my initial thesis. You know, we could survive for several years that way. And survive here, I'm being very generous to call it survival. I would reconsider this thesis and actually say that, actually, we cannot, this, this status quo can no longer survive considering how vulnerable it is to the geopolitical realities. So let's say... <laughs> I, I mean, maybe this is more... Which is not necessarily a bad thing, by the way, as painful as it is. It's mm. not necessarily a bad thing because the status quo is a horrible status quo. Yeah. Well said. So let's say that's this. the status quo is untenable regardless. Yes. And it's been proven to be untenable and we know the result. As we speak. Exactly. So that kind of... I'm going to try to compare Lebanon and I don't know how valuable this is in terms of... a serious article for publication. It may be more anecdotal, but I'd like to at least touch the surface here. An inability to shield anything from that problem, whether it's politics, economics, day-to-day -day life, the shielding is not there. So everything's exposed to that kind of endless problem. Mm -hmm. Do you think of Lebanon as moving in a direction that could be familiar to other countries? I'll give you an example. Somalia. Now, Somalia, from what I understand, limited knowledge, there are geographic areas, they're not called cantons there, but they function like cantons, that to me, at a glance, look like Batroun. They're, quote-unquote, functioning. Yeah. Whatever that means to Somalia, I think it probably means to Batroun right now. And then you have a capital city that is completely unrecognizable, Mogadishu, a failed state on the national level, but then you have these semi-functional, semi-autonomous Somaliland, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Somaliland, Puntland, which if you go on Google Images, it's quite startling. It's not what you think of when you think of Somalia. And it really looks like Kfarabida, you know, Jamal and the places we know. So is that a scenario that could be happening right now? Okay. We're going to a, a failed state for in Somalia's case over three decades. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's talk about, uh, let's start off with pre-Gaza and then we move to post-Gaza. Sure. Okay. Uh, you already had something that resembles that post-collapse 
uh, already in place because the way I would think of Lebanon's post-collapse economy as two totally different economies. There's an economy that seems to be thriving. Again, I'm being very generous by calling it, by saying that it's thriving, functioning somewhat, which is for the perhaps 15, 20% of the population that can afford it, plus the diaspora, yeah. plus the very few tourists. If you look at, if, if you could somewhat sort of separate the two between this bubble of the 15, 20% that can afford living in Lebanon, and therefore you're talking here about the restaurants, the hotels, uh, uh, whatever recreational activities. If you look at that separately and you look at the rest of the country, which is the majority, uh, the overwhelming majority actually, you could see two totally, two totally contradicting images. Mm -hmm. one, of, one image that seems to be doing reasonably well, quote unquote, and another that no one is seeing that has zero to little to no visibility uh, that is uh, living in destitution and poverty. And, and, and what makes it more tragic is that there's no visibility about it. I mean, compare and contrast Badaru, Marim Khayel, Batroun with uh, Trablos. Uh, there is no room for comparison. You, you wouldn't think that these are both in the same country. It's for the that for, foreigners prefer Trablus, so nahna we go to Batroun. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, so it was already there in one way or the other post-collapse. Uh, you could somewhat, you know, separate between the two and think about two different economies within the same country. Yeah. Uh, Post-Gaza, you have different scenarios. Let us say we are in a scenario where you have the current level of skirmishes that are going on the borders. And let's say they persist for several months and they become the new normal because knowing how good we are at normalizing things, assuming that these skirmishes last for long enough and don't escalate, then this will become a new normal. Yeah. yeah? So then we move to a scenario that I think is very similar to 1990s Lebanon. I was going to say this. Uh, where, uh, where you had post-Civil War Lebanon, anything other than the South was somewhat functioning. And then the South was a totally different story altogether. Uh, there was occupation. Uh, um, the, uh, there were military skirmishes quite frequently. But for some reason, you had this analogy of Hanoi and Hong Kong, yeah. uh, which Walid Jumblat mentioned uh, several years ago, where basically the South was Hanoi and the rest of the country was Hong Kong, even though Hong Kong is too generous uh, uh, an uh, uh, a comparison. So you could see Lebanon then moving in that direction as people start normalizing this uh, new normal of skirmishes along the borders that remain contained. The new normal, yes. which I completely agree with your analogy for the 1990s. Yeah. It really feels like the 1990s again. Yeah. Three decades removed. Even though people, st it did not sink in yet. Right. Yeah. And, and once it starts sinking in, yeah, let, let, let's take uh, Lebanon's post-collapse economy, post-collapse pre-Gaza economy as a benchmark. Okay. Assuming that... Uh, so really 2019 until... Two weeks ago. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. Uh, actually, not even 2019, the last year where things started to somewhat uh -huh. falsely stabilize right. or superficially okay. stabilize. Yeah. Uh, let's take that as a benchmark for a minute. Uh, right now, we're diverging from that benchmark because 
part and parcel of this benchmark is having some form of tourism in place. Clearly, the most likely scenario is that you're not going to have any form of serious tourism during Christmas and New Year right now. But in the medium to long term, as the status quo of contained skirmishes sinks in, assuming they remain contained, mm. you will converge back to this uh, status quo of uh, false stability. Uh, it won't be as good as that. It would be somewhere l- worse than it, yeah. but it would stabilize as something uh, at something lower than it. Uh, so that is one scenario. That is the best case scenario, assuming that the war on Gaza persists. Now, let's go to the second scenario, which is uh, things uh, escalate further. In, in Gaza and then implications. Yes, over. and it spills over yeah. further in Lebanon. Yes. Uh, and actually, uh, we, o- we might also have something close to uh, post-Civil War Lebanon, pre-2000 Lebanon, depending on the extent to which the, uh, the escalation mm. happens. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have, uh, God forbid, 100 times a 2006-like scenario. Or even a 1996 one. Yes, where it's, yes. It does have long-term yes. implications. Yeah. You will still have some form of convergence, yeah. but again, worse, yeah. much worse than the previous two scenarios. But it will take more time for it to sink in. As, because something as drastic as that will take time for people to normalize. So this is a silly question. I come as an amateur to this subject. No, not at all. It, are there any, is there any capability or at least are there any tools right now available to shield what's left without the worst case scenario, which is taken seriously? Yeah. Are there any, I mean, in a way, the, those three sectors that we outlined, maybe with the exception of remittances. Remittances will stay fixed. That, that even during the extent. 1980s. Was, yes, it yeah. will stay there. Tourism, and here, um, not tourism, we'll start talking more about, you know, uh, diaspora visiting their families. Right. You might see a pause of that, a pause in such activity for several months, for a year, for two, mm-hmm. whatever. But as this reality sinks in, uh, and as people recognize what are the no-go areas, the conflict areas, yeah. and the non-conflict areas, as painful as it, as it is to say it, because you know this is a single country or mm. supposed to be such, uh, people will start uh, diaspora will start visiting those safer yeah. places. It will take time for people to recognize what are the conflict areas and the non-conflict areas. Does that, in effect, point to Somalia then? Where you have, because it, it seems like Somalia is there now. Close enough, but not there yet. Mm. Where do we get there yet? Where escalation takes an extremely ugly turn. Mm. Yeah? yeah. Where you have an all out war, let's say, an all out military war. Uh, then, in light of the political polarization in the country, huge political polarization, uh, you might see forms of uh, de facto cantons taking place. Now, in a scenario where you have a functioning state faced with uh, uh, an all-out war, then you would have what's called a war economy. The state would direct, you would have an economy that's more sort of uh, uh, controlled by the state, that is more directed by the state, uh, 
towards uh, for the purposes of financing or coping with war. Uh, you don't have that. Was Lebanon ever in that scenario, even during the war? Was there a war? No, you didn't really. You you had the de, f- de facto forms of localized war economies. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that is what you might have done in the absence of a central state mm. that, that, that basically aids the country in transitioning from a normal economy to a war economy. Yeah. Uh, you will have uh, local economies taking shape uh, that all of them will be war economies, no matter no matter what one might think, you know, you might say, well, actually, the real war economy would be in south of Lebanon, in Dahia, and whatever. Yeah. But even the rest of the country, let's assume that you will have localized economies there, mm. which is a serious possibility because uh, given the level of political polarization, uh, you're already hearing this toxic discourse of people saying, we have nothing to do with this war, we should have nothing to, as in like, we we being uh, the subset of the country, yeah, yeah? yeah, yeah. Uh, should have nothing to do with it. Yeah. If the South gets into war, it's none of our business, or South finds itself into a war, let's say, it's none yeah. of our business. And therefore that would lead to these localized economies. But even those localized economies will be war economies because they will be forced into coping with uh, the knock-on effects of the war. Because there will be no beyond their control anyway. Exactly. Things like uh, 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 migration from conflict zones to non-conflict zones, uh, uh, amongst many things. So so you will have basically a scenario of localized, de facto localized war economies. Some might be more oriented towards more economies than others, but all of them will be war economies, albeit in different degrees. In that scenario, then, you could see unusual things like certain sectors improving in local areas only. I'm not sure if improving. I think surviving rather than improving. Surviving rather than improving. Uh, And barely surviving for that matter. Mm. You'll have what's called uh, zombie sectors that are just there but are not really functioning. Um, So that's... So th- this is where we get into more into this Somalia territory, yeah. where you have these de facto, it might start off as merely local economies, but then it will converge to uh, local security apparatuses, sub-state security yeah. apparatuses, and that will eventually converge to cantons. So really the implications of an all-out war, in my view, are profound and extend beyond uh merely uh, physical destruction to total uh breakdown of the country let's assume that that's the worst case scenario mm. and it may not be the most likely scenario i still think it's one of the less likely scenarios i share that sentiment yeah. too the best case scenario is bad the best case scenario, assuming that the war in Gaza remains. Again, this is conditional on that. Yes. Yeah. Now, this is more trying to forecast, if you, if you will. How does the economy survive under that kind of scenario? Is it just a, what we've experienced up until two weeks ago, albeit more crippling? Is it really just the status quo that lingers until it... Yeah. I mean... W- in other words, October 7 becomes the new norm. The South is the way you described it. Yeah. 
it goes back to the 1990s scenario. Yeah. And then we're still in this mess. So how, what does it look like? Is it October 6th out just worse? Okay. Uh, yes, worse. But, but, but before you even get there, uh, bear in mind that uh, it will take a while for this new normal to sink in. Yeah. And therefore, the way I'm seeing it is, and again, this is merely educated guesses. Yeah. I, I totally stand corrected. I might be proven wrong and I hope to be proven wrong for the better. Sure. Uh, um, and then you'll go on Twitter and apologize. For <laughs> <laughs> I could see a scenario where, you know, you have a complete, para- we have a paralysis right now. Yeah. A complete paralysis in these sort of pillars in the economy. Basically, in particular, the tourism aspect, mm. you'll have complete paralysis there. Yeah. Uh, therefore, lower foreign currency inflows, therefore more pressure on the exchange rate. So you might then find a further devaluation in the exchange rate towards some other new normal. With yeah. places shutting down that depend on that kind of sector. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not all of them will shut down, mm. but many of them will shut down. Yeah. Um, until this new reality sinks in, people start recognizing, okay, these areas are safe and therefore we could flock there. We could visit these places. We could see our families there. Our families might move there yeah. and live there. And, right. and then you will start seeing activity picking up within these regions. Uh, but again, it's just, we're talking here about a stagnation, a level of economic stagnation within a narrower geographic region this mm. time because it was there across the board in the country. Now you will have it only in the, the non-conflict areas. Yeah. Right. So eventually it would converge back to this business as usual and over the last year, not as good, yeah, somewhat worse, uh, but it will take time and how long it will take is proportionate to uh, how contained uh, these skirmishes are at the border. You're a very eloquent explainer of complicated issues like this. I, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm learning actually from you right now. Um, I'll try to segue back to this subject a bit later. But before, I want to get into our own shared experiences of what leads up to this scenario mm-hmm. and what maybe brings us to more exposure individually, which yeah. was October 17. I can assume that all the things that we talked about in the last four or five years are not going to happen. I'll give you three chief examples. Uh, the IMF deal. Yeah. I, I can't see that happening in my lifetime. Maybe, maybe it will. May, I doubt it. Uh, the, I share that sentiment. Okay, so we, yeah. I'd like to go into that. The Port Blast investigation everyone talked about, I think we can safely put that to rest. There's no Port Blast investigation. These are two huge things. And the third one, which is a more controversial one, and we can go at it if you want, what exactly the anti-establishment group and all of its flavors, from the change MPs to the anti-change opposition MPs Mm. to the Mm -hmm. anti-establishment individuals, I think they're not carrying the weight. In other words, their footprint is very small. If any. If any. Okay. So, shit, we agree on everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's, go, let's go through them one by one. Yeah. Is that, first, is that a, do you see things that way in your, in your own 
in your own narrative and trying to explain what you know best, mm. do you think of it in the same way that it's a permanent decline? That all that stuff we talked about five years ago is simply not on the table. And all, all the advocacy was never taken seriously. Mm. But uh, just to clarify, by permanent decline, in what sense you mean a decline? You know, uh, Somalia may be the best case scenario. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Gaza, yeah. which is, which is uh, yeah. impossible to imagine in mm. Lebanon, but I could see the road yeah. towards that scenario here too. I disagree with the permanency of it. Mm. I disagree with the permanency of it. Uh, is it long term? Yes, it certainly is. And one would be delusional to think otherwise. Uh, this uh, sort of decline or stagnation, if you want to be generous, is a long term one. Uh, and uh, accepting this horizon means that any political action or any political activism should be based on this horizon, taking that reality into account, that, okay, the status quo of stagnation is a long-term one. We're in this for the long haul. That's not a call for giving up, but that's a call for saying, well, basically, the the nature of the political activism is of a more long-term uh, nature rather than uh, an immediate one. Unless, of course, we were talking about windows of opportunity. Right. Unless a window yeah. of opportunity shows up, yeah. and that is one which you need to prepare for. So really much of the work would be on two fronts. One, working more at a gradualist level. I would think of it more at a sectoral level. Yeah, Sectoral? Uh, that sectoral in the sense that syndicates, for example, mm. uh, ensure, uh, enabling uh, worker syndicates, be it assuming that they are there, or maybe enabling the establishment of worker syndicates where they are not there, mm. um, to basically uh, um, influ force a new reality, a new economic reality for themselves. So here, the language that you would want to use for, with them is one that is related to their own economic interests. Right. Um, so that is one. But on the other hand, you should be preparing for that opportunity that may come at any point in time. Which goes back to the reason you are here. Yes. So yeah. pre pre preparing for, I don't know if it's the right analogy, the black swan. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is that, it, yeah. It, it, it is a black swan event to a large extent. Okay, so preparing for the unexpected opportunity which could happen 10 years from now or a year from now. Yeah. Uh, but anticipating for the most part that this is a generational uh, story. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess when retrospect now, looking back at October 17 and the moment that came and went, do you think of that as an epic disappointment? That, was, that a, was that an opportunity that you saw seriously? Because yes. For, okay. So that it was an epic failure. Yes. Yeah. It was an epic failure, and and this is not. Uh, I'm not trying to self-flagellate here. This is really just looking at it and critiquing it, so that we don't fall into these very same traps. Once another window of opportunity shows up, and I'm quite confident that we will live to see the day where a window of opportunity shows up that we should exploit. Uh, so uh, why the, the more important question is why was it an epic failure? Yeah. 
at least in my view, mm. uh, it was an epic failure because uh, the emphasis was on what we were against. So we were against the political class, but not really what we were for. So what kind of Lebanon we want? And the question of what kind of Lebanon we want, the answer to it requires having a political program, a political agenda, and being shameless that, you know, you want to basically influence the country. And the only way you want to influence the direction of the country is by ruling. So uh, most opposition groups shied away from this, shied away from saying, okay, this is what we want. This is how we see Lebanon. Mm. This is how we want Lebanon to be. And the only way where you could get there is by getting to power. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong, and it's perfectly normal that during certain periods of time, groups that are poles apart might episodically find themselves together in the same front for a certain period of time. Yeah. Yeah? But to get to the point where you could forge an alliance with another group, you need to be clear on what you agree on, and more importantly, what you disagree on, Mm. And whether you could live with these disagreements or not. Right. Yeah? Alliances don't happen. And they only happen with between groups that disagree. Yeah. Otherwise, if they agree on everything, there's no point of an alliance. Maybe one yeah? group. Yeah. But, but, but the problem is that, you know, we opposition groups didn't seem to know what they disagreed on and what they agreed on to forge meaningful alliances. If I could use that as a template, which you laid out, and then go back to the last four years. Let's assume things went in that direction. There's a political platform. There's serious acknowledgement of disagreements. Yeah. There's constructive alliances on strategic goals. And yeah. this could be a few. It doesn't have to be a daily occurrence. Yeah. Let's say... Or even tactical goals. Tactical goals. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it could be... I mean, I'm sorry to use this word, but transactional. Yeah, yeah. There, uh, it could I mean, be I mean, literally like... We don't yeah. want to be... Uh, in politics, you cannot be pure, a purist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot be a purist in politics. And there are plenty of purists in politics. <laughs> there, or, or, or who would like to think of themselves as purists. Uh, well said. That, let's say things moved in that... Uh, let's say that template was applied. Yeah. And that window of opportunity, what you see as necessary, took shape. Is there... Anything to the, not necessarily it's a counter-argument, it's more trying to insert what's happening right now with Gaza and that kind of scenario in Lebanon. Are we, through that kind of platform, better shielded from things that are essential to the economy anyway? Given the current status quo? Yes. No. Okay. No, no, no. We're in a totally different reality right now. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, uh, what we should be bracing ourselves for is uh, what kind of economy can cope with a reality that is exogenous to us, that we have little to no control over. Would a shared platform be better at making that a reality? Well, that shared platform will only be able to make that a reality if it's in power. Right. And it goes back, you know, if the goal of an opposition is just to be in opposition... I don't want it, to be honest. So I want an opposition yeah. that clearly says, I am in here to get to power, 
And this is what I will do from day one. X, A, B, C, D, E, whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's not the case so far. So let's go with that power yeah. analogy. And it's the way it is right now that the crowd in power is the crowd we know. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of a... You're, you're, you've been summoned to explain uh, what's going on. Mm. And you, you're the person sought to to advise policy right now. What would you recommend, given how bad things are? And how would you, how would you sell it? And I'll give you just a standard, uh, standard thing, which we both dismissed. Let's say the IMF is serious <laughs> about a deal happening. H- how could that possibly happen? With the crowd in power right now, is it an impossible scenario? It's an impossible scenario. Okay, so that door is completely closed. Yes. So yeah. how is power achieved now to make what you want a reality? Is it? It's going to take a lot of time. As I said, you know, it goes back to you know preparing for that window, uh, imp- working on two things in parallel. One, empowering. Uh, sectors that have been crushed as a result of the collapse, empowering them to get back their rights in their own hand, but in parallel, preparing for that window of opportunity when it comes so that you could exploit it in a bid to get to power. Again, I I cannot emphasize enough on this. No, no, I agree. I'll be devil's advocate, though. Uh, What are the windows of opportunity now? Are they another uprising? Are they elections? Are they... You said syndicates. Is that leaning more on municipal elections if they happen what what does a window of opportunity look like is it is it security related is it taking advantage of a a scenario where you insert yourself accordingly okay so uh, i think uh, one thing which the collapse what one myth which the collapse put to bed yeah. is that you can bet that if things go really bad people will rise up as a result of it. That, 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 that a huge collapse will trigger people into rising up. It's quite the contrary, actually. Yeah. Uh, because uh, uh, the worse things get, the more, uh, the more people's priorities as individuals be, will be oriented towards surviving, personal survival. And therefore, as a result of this, uh, Politics, in the proper sense of the word, becomes a luxury that only those who can afford it engage in. So, 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 so let's start off. One window of one uh, hypothesized window of opportunity is that things become that, that this current status quo of uh, stability stops. It becomes yes, it, anarchic. It, almost. Yes, yeah. a bet on that I think is a failed bet. Mm, yeah, given our personal experience with the 2019-2020 collapse. Um, so, I mean, it's very, it's it's really very difficult to speculate how that window of opportunity will look like given the current scenario, especially given the current scenario, given the current geopolitical scenario, it is very difficult to actually visualize a, a, a window of opportunity, to be honest. Uh, and to say otherwise would be quite arrogant from my side. Uh, so, so Quite not, frankly, I, I can't tell. I, I can't even think of a window of opportunity under such a scenario. I can remove this from the episode. No, later. that's perfectly fine. Uh, no, no, uh, the next part. The next yeah. part. Um, <laughs> no, that part was nice. No, uh, let's look back at October 17 through elections. Yeah, May 2022. Uh, we saw certain groups doing what you talked about. Yeah, but their traction was limited. 
traction, meaning not necessarily in total votes. It could be that it didn't seem to sell on a national no. level. For whatever reason, it didn't become the defining uh, alternative for mm. power. It became a background story quickly and it faded fast. I don't have to name them if you don't want yes, me to. Yes, yes, yes. I'm well aware yeah. who you're talking about. Being careful here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is anyone disguised as him in the background? No. Nope. <laughs> no. Okay. So that uh, very carefully crafted uh, scenario happened and went with a flicker. Although when it was happening, it felt like there's something there and it it's not there. That kind of platform with that kind of exposure didn't really stick. Yeah, How would it stick the next time? It, does it stick more because things are worse? Or does it simply stick at the same level given that it's not a- appealing enough? Yeah, I think we need to own up to our failures here. Uh, uh, it didn't stick because these groups didn't do a good enough job uh, in appealing to uh, people in general. And and this and here this is my purely personal view. This extremely sort of elitist language that was being used. Mm. Let, let's be honest. I mean, if you, if you want to appeal you, to get to power, you need to appeal to people. You cannot appeal to people with elitist language. Mm. Not in this country, certainly. By elitist, it could even be academic. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, the, I, in hindsight, the only language that works with people is a language that they can relate to. And the only language that they can relate to is a language that talks to them from the angle of their economic interests as groups or individuals. So it's on a very local, almost individual it's, it's, level. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Because that's the only way you could, that's the hook based on which you could sort of appeal to people. You know, it's interesting. It's not the same story, but two, day, two nights ago, I did an episode with Fadi Bukaram about this subject, about uh, communication through elitist words. And he's, he was very upset about that kind of, discourse because it turns people away he was even talking about his own father not understanding and he has to explain the subject to his father at least it doesn't Mm -hmm. work so is that a lesson learned for the next round that it's going to be not necessarily populist but more down to earth down to earth yes and that would make it more sellable during the next round yes or so i would hope at least so a further question on that is that something that's happening in smaller circles, is there any maybe grassroots activism that's not shared on social media? Uh, we are starting to see some signs. They're not that overt yet. Uh, my hope is that they will start showing their face quite quickly. Are you spearheading this uh, initiative? No. no. Does that mean yes? <laughs> no. No. Oh, Certainly yes. not. Certainly not. <laughs> Definite yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I think you should. I think uh, I think you, as somebody who learns, as somebody who listens to a lot of people talk, I think that kind of measure and uh, and patience, I think it it is persuasive. Thanks. It could it could I think catch on when it's sold the right way. Anyway, uh, the last section before we get to a break yeah. in Q and A. Um, well, it's a two two layered question. Uh, the first one is kind of straightforward. When you go to AUB now and you're lecturing to the next generation, 
are you implying that this is something they should take from you? Are you, are you showing them in your courses a, a gap that you'd like to see them fill later? So in other words, it's not politics, it's classroom. Yeah. It's not necessarily always appropriate there, but I'm sure people ask you similar questions in the class. At least they're, they're, they're searching for something like that. Are you using academia to maybe make this a little more feasible later? Okay. So uh, I think this speaks up more to the broader question of the role of, uni- of a university yeah. uh, in a crisis scenario. Uh, and what's uh, perhaps the most heartbreaking thing that I have to deal with is that I am teaching a group of students who almost all of them are planning to leave the country once they finish their degrees. Yeah. Now, w- I didn't consider that. Yeah. You're, like, you're educating a class of... A generation that's leaving. That, that that's planning to leave. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that being said, that being said, uh, I would like to bring you back to the idea that you know the the current state of affairs cannot be permanent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it it can and will be long term, but there will be an inflection point. There has to be an inflection point. Uh, so uh, and since um, I teach finance, uh, I can basically use that as an example. Let's be very clear, no modern economy can survive and thrive in the absence of a functional financial sector. Yeah? So that's a reality, whether we like it or not. Okay? With that in mind, uh, once that inflection point happens, you know, it could be the political atmosphere changes in the country, whatever. Uh, And given that you virtually have no financial sector in the country right now, some people will have to come back and basically build it from scratch. Yeah. Now, am I expecting that from my students? Certainly not. That would Mm. be expecting too much. But Mm. my hope is that a subset of them, Mm. once, uh, once that window of opportunity shows up, would be spearheading or contributing to the efforts to set up a financial sector that serves the economy and serves society in the way that it should, rather than it being just the speculative vehicle that it was since the 1990s. So it's hoping that a subset of those students remember you. And not come... me. No, no, no. Not remember me. That once they graduate yeah. and they gain excellent experiences abroad yeah. and they go up the career ladder, yeah, that they may eventually find uh, politically reformed Lebanon, albeit with little to, with barely any functioning financial sector, to be actually an opportunity for them to exploit, even f- even if from a purely opportunistic viewpoint. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing inherently wrong with that. Yeah. So they're looking for the same window of opportunity. In yes, effect. yes, yeah. yes, yes. Even if from a pers- from the perspective of personal interests. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and therein lies the role of a state that that wants to ensure that these personal interests are aligned with the broader good. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. Uh, now, when I think of AUB, for better or worse, I think about friends who lecture at AUB. Even though I went to AUB, mm. I know the campus in and out. I grew up walking through that campus at a later state of life, later stage. I think about friends. Mm. I think about you when I think about AUB, for better or worse. <laughs> I think about other people too. 
And this is a, you can say whatever you'd like. This is really just to get your emotional, mm. uh, it's to ask you something that if it relates to you in any way, on an emotional level, uh, you see people expressing themselves. And you have to let, there has to be a way for people to vent their anger. I don't know if we always find the right way, but there has to be a way. And I become hesitant. I become cautious. Even though I know protesters are not going to enter AUB, I know that. Mm. It would never happen. I know the limitations of that kind of scenario. But seeing protesters at least not attack AUB, but vandalize certain mm. areas of the campus on the outside, I become reluctant. Naturally. Forget why they're protesting. Forget the anger behind yeah. it. I sense that it's something that I think of as essential under attack and I take a step back okay so uh, uh, as much as I understand the reluctance I, I think we need to be a I don't mean you in general yeah, yeah. us as being people who might be reluctant be a bit more down to earth and understand why this is happening yeah. uh, and in the absence of organized political groups that mobilize people to protest for whatever goals, you will find these ad hoc protests that mm. are disorganized mm. that will take certain forms that we may or may not like. And in many cases, we may not like. And now I'm not trying to normalize this in any way, but I think it, it shouldn't be surprising. That's what I mean. Yeah. Given the state of affairs the country in, yeah. given uh, the geopolitical context surrounding it, given how high emotions are, I think we need to somewhat empathize with, uh, as difficult as it is, with those people and yeah. where they're coming from, or at least, under, n not empathize, but at least understand why this is happening. Mm, yeah. be because personally, I don't find it to be particularly surprising. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. It's, it's, yeah. it's, in, 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 in the context that we live in, protests going south and taking an unpleasant turn it's perfectly expected it's yeah. we should expect that we shouldn't be surprised about it in any way it's expected and i don't think it should make us reluctant quite the contrary precisely because uh it's disorganized we need to find ways through which we can organize uh any protest movement in a way that makes it purposeful rather than just a way to vent out. That word is essential, disorganized. I think the organized version of it has a different level of expectation of what it could do. But even in disorganized expression, and I share the sentiment as well, you have to, the, the sympathy has to be there even when it's uncomfortable. Yes. But it always, it teeters on thuggery sometimes. Teeters. Yeah. That could be vandalism. That could be people getting attacked because they're bystanders. Mm. And I know none of us really like Starbucks. <laughs> but when you see that Starbucks broken into, it does. It sends a different message. It, it becomes less disorganized political expression, more what seems to be an indicator of bad things to come. Or at least low-level violence that could spill in that direction more often. Now, when it comes to low-level violence, yes, we should be anticipating low-level low-level low violence uh, 
being a thing, mm. uh, not normalized, but anticipated. And, yeah. We shouldn't be uh, surprised about it. And uh, and quite frankly, I wouldn't want, I, I don't think we should be confrontational towards them mm. uh, in any way, uh, because really it feeds in more into the grievances driving them. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I, I'm not sure if I answered. Uh, your no, you're choosing the words that I think which are missing sometimes. That it's anticipation rather than uh, tolerance. Well, yeah, it's a, a, and it's disorganized versus. And we sh- I mean, yeah, I mean, one would have to be quite disconnected not to have expected yeah. low-level violence to take place, given how high emotions are. Yeah. So to wrap it up. Both of us use social media yeah. beyond our profession. Uh, both of us express ourselves in ways that are sometimes funny. I know that and, you're, and many times inappropriate, at least inappropriate. for myself. <laughs> I know that you're a cat lover by accident. Yes, <laughs> and I'm a cat lover too. Yeah. So these are. I mean, that's the same page where you're expressing the most politically charged statement. Yeah, <laughs> and they could be literally on top of each other. Which yes. Is, yeah. So it makes me wonder what exactly is going on. Do you stroke your cat and get? You know, ideas for the future of Lebanon. <laughs> that evil, uh, what's his name in Inspector Gadget? This uh, evil guy at the end who's, yeah. I, I, I use social media too, and I do vent sometimes. There are moments where I realize I'm, I am expressing myself with uh, electricity. Mm. Do you think, and this is going back to what's happening right now, do you think we're using our social media the right way? to offer what I think is a principled statement in support of a population that's under attack, denied their freedom, denied justice, denied everything. Mm-hmm. Rob, robbed of all that should come from history in a positive yeah. way. Treated in the worst case scenario right now. Are we doing the right thing? Are we reflecting the right way through social media? Vis-a-vis Gaza, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Fadi, yesterday, two nights mm. ago, chooses a path of moderation and benefit of the doubt, which I thought was an unusual path. He has these five-minute clips where he's trying to reach out to the other side, mm. but it's almost like sedative talking. I don't know if that's better or worse. I don't know if it matters or not, really. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing, in other words, trying to punch, mm. is that the right way? I think it's the very least we can do. It's the very least we can do, given the limitations. So yes, it is. Uh, we, 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 if, if we can do more, we should do more. But unfortunately, that's all we can do. And the very least we can do. That's well said. Yeah. Yeah. I'll leave it there. So Perfect. let's take a 10-minute break. I think uh, we can turn the music back on. And we'll then have a Q&A moment You can ask anything you want to both of us. Thanks, Muhammad. Thanks.
بروفيسور فول لا دخيلك بلا هالكلمه اسيستنت بروفيسور فول جاست محمد محمد ثانك يو تفضل محمد سمو Let's make this Q&A as fun as possible. I know things are bleak. I know the conversation's heavy. But most of us are friends here. I think everyone knows each other for the most part. So ask us whatever you'd like. Uh, and the audio goes into the episode. There's no video on you, so don't worry. You won't be in the episode, just your voice. Oh, shit. <laughs> What, do you want to be in the video? You have to stand right here <laughs> and ask us. So... Any questions to start with? Hola. And just, just introduce yourself, who you are, what you do. Hi. Um, Ola Kazel. I'm an interior architect. Uh, and this is what I do, basically, with other things. Uh, I actually have a question that's a bit economical. Like, we are basically good in uh, tourism. And we witnessed a very successful summer season. Um, and we are almost on another touristic season, which is like the Christmas season. December should be very busy. We're big in Christmas markets and uh, concerts and all these kinds and, and ski also. But um, what's happening now with that? Like even if this war situation won't escalate, even if this is like even if this was going to end tomorrow, are we still expecting a successful, a successful season or everything is getting canceled now? Um, what, judging by the current circumstances, it's very difficult to see a tourism season during Christmas and New Year. Uh, but more importantly, I think, is that uh, even if things do sort of tomorrow stabilize, uh, this uh, stigma of war will still linger. Uh, so it will take a while until people start easing back into the country given how profound the spillover of the tragedy of Gaza was to Lebanon. So I, I, uh, I don't see... And, and one, one, one of the main points that I was mentioning uh, initially was that you know, this shows how vulnerable Lebanon is economically, that you are so heavily dependent on a seasonal sector like tourism, amongst uh, other things like remittances, uh, in a region that you cannot depend on such things so heavily. Tourism will always be the most imp- one of the most, if not the most important aspect of the Lebanese economy, but you cannot be overly dependent on it. You just cannot, especially in this uh, geopolitical environment, which will never fade away. It's something that we have to live with. So yeah, I don't see a great tourism season if that's a question. <laughs> the gentleman. Hi. Um, just just who you are, please. What you do. Nine. Nine. What do I do? It's, it's the, let's skip that. <laughs> um, a lot of things. So one thing I seriously don't understand is like, I think, okay, it's, Lots of smart questions, but most of this is going to happen in some eco chamber. We're very familiar with how this goes, either on Twitter or somewhere. I'm talking to my followers, to my audience, to my... 
and there's this I, I, I don't I don't understand this anymore like you know, we, we know this we see this like it it feels like I'm just talking to my fingers you know I'm trying to convince myself of something some very smart idea that I'm coming up with oh there's someone that looks just like me how about I sit down and talk to his fingers I'm not I'm it's you know but like basic like almost feels like hyper normalism like what's his name again I forgot his name so uh, is it am I the alien to feel like this it's it yeah because I keep bringing this up and it's like we even have like brave new world drugs for it if something slightly bothers my bubble you know I can take something to and the world can just burn outside and I'm fine. I don't get this. I, it's, I just don't get it. We, we ex- like we're supposed to just sit here and watch things. Ah, oh, this is the news. This is what's happening. I don't get it. Let me, I'll say something and yes. then uh, yeah, I'll, yes. I don't. I guess it's for both of us, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. By the way, I know what you do now. You're you're draw. You you sketch. Show me the back of that. That's pretty good. Oh, it's your oh. Okay, well, she's talented. <laughs> the question you asked is something that I've been thinking of for, what, six years now? Longer. I mean, this podcast is exactly, you kind of, you threw the whole thing under the bus the right way. Uh, narrative, I think, is the only tool people have right now in trying to shape something. Hamad and I have talked several times. We've talked about different issues. We've even talked once, and it was one of my most interesting discussions. It's yourself with a federalist. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all talking about the moment we're going through. But we were all very calm with each other and patient. It's a long time ago. Mm. But that's about narrative. It's trying to find mutual understanding trying to find problems, identify them, rethink how Lebanon got here. There are many disagreements on the way. Even within this conversation, if Muhammad and I really talked about it mm. for hours on end, we'd reach points of disagreement. But I think the narrative war, if that's how it's called, is one of the few tools left for people in this country when, when talking. But politics, I agree with you. There isn't much, Muhammad was right. Power is essential, and I think power has been denied for this type of person for a very long time. It's on audio, YouTube, everywhere, yeah. We used to have more, we, we used to have more open channels for discussion that mean something, like old Reddit, for example, or forums. If I don't know, like just 10 years ago, the internet was something where you have diverse opinions and so and now even reddit is not reddit anymore and there's no like comments don't do anything on youtube or any of the platforms that's what i'm talking about i'm I, you two can have a brilliant discussion but that's as far as it's gonna go it is like anyone who has some comment on something is just gonna be buried in a pile and we, we, we have other we we know other alternatives for that foster like proper discussion and we we know how to do that we just don't 
do that because we're comfortable in our own eco bubbles. Me included. I'm, 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 you know, all of us. This is how it's gone now. That's my uh, point. Uh, I think uh, one thing which the collapse gave rise to is uh, lots of mini bubbles that people formed around themselves as a coping mechanism. Uh, and uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong, and allow me to say it, say that, yes, this is one of those bubbles. Uh, there's no insult in saying that. Mm. Uh, I have my own bubble too, and uh, that's a form of a coping mechanism because that's the only way really I could cope with what's going on around me. So the country right now, particularly, it was always the case, but more so post-crisis, is a collection of different bubbles, different echo chambers, and... Uh, we need to content with this reality. We need to be content with that reality. Uh, so, so if what you mean is that this is a bubble, yeah, perhaps. And uh, I don't think a bubble is in and of itself an insult. Where does a bubble become a problem? An issue is is that let's say you are working in politics. If your political activism is within that echo chamber, then that is a problem. But beyond political activism. I don't see anything inherently wrong with bubbles, especially in the in the context that we live in. We're talking about problems that you want. If if we're talking about problems that we want to resolve, you want to do something where okay, if we're having a a disagreement on something, if if we have the chance to put it down on paper and we can reach. To, or, or at least have a face-to-face -face talk, we can reach, so, but if we're just happy to be... I understand not everything has to be a discussion and all of this, but at least for the things that we're trying to move forward, I don't understand how we can do that without addressing the bubble first. Like, uh, we complain about all of this, and then we go and just use Twitter and WhatsApp. Like the, the very basic settings of what it is you're using don't allow you to do to move anything forward. I, mean, I think it's being a little too hard. I think narrative is still something that's valuable. And shaping opinion when those windows of opportunity emerge, I think there's something there, but it's a limited tool. But I think the alternative in this uh, climate would be one of two things. Muhammad and I start shooting people, which I don't think either one of us can do. Yeah. We're and we, we wouldn't be doing a good job at it anyways. We wouldn't be doing, yeah. So we, we would take, we would, <laughs> we would end that very quickly. <laughs> yeah, well, that's even worse. Yeah. So uh, taking security measures into our own hands, which is, I think, the false power neither one of us searches for. The other one I think you're alluding to, which is a paralyzed politics in Lebanon that goes beyond discussions. I mean, mm. I've had, I don't know how big the bubble is. I've had disagreements. I, I don't know if this is the first episode, maybe you've listened. Yeah, so I've had some episodes that it's night and day with the mm. other person, but they could still be in that bubble. It could still, yeah. There should be some environment to induce more of that yeah. because this is where you know this is, you didn't shoot each apparently you're still here you had that discussion so yeah. it must have done something but like you said we're all here friends i don't 
who are we talking? Like, you know, I, I'm trying to imagine a place where we're talking to someone across the aisle somehow. Was that name? That should be in Parliament, not in Alias. And that that <laughs> is a political process, not to two people that are better at uh, talking and th- yeah. Uh, other questions? I know, Samir, you have one, but just anyone? No? Okay, Samir, please. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> uh, just to chime in a little bit on this, uh, the issue of narrative as well. I mean, I, 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 I kind of feel with that question, especially when you're talking about the internet and how it was 10 years ago. I remember it back in the 90s as well. It was really more free with IRC and a lot of forums popping up and then. But yeah, I, I do feel we've kind of lost something. But again, with the issue with narrative and what we're doing, podcasts or keep talking about all these issues, is that we're just leaving markers uh, for historians later on to, you know, we, we tend to see our uh, life from the perspective of our lifetime and history and evolution doesn't work that way. It works on much grander scales, in my opinion. So it's just a period we're in, I guess. But uh, the question I do want to ask is, okay, so 2008, 2009, major banking collapse across the world. Lebanon was very, oh, we're very fine here. Look at us. And, uh, you know, then 2019 happens. I think that was all in the waiting. All imploded. You, yeah, you, 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 you said something very interesting. I thought that, you know, uh, we need a good financial sector and the banking system is part of the financial sector and they're mostly corrupt because they're yeah. in bed with the politicians or partially owned by the politicians or, you know, that. So this is a reduction of a much bigger question I had from other things, mm-hmm. but yeah, so... Let's say we did have a good standing government and, you know, this or, you know, people like you or uh, the change movement step into power, gain power and, you know, it's time to do something. So how as as a measure, how, how would you find nationalizing all the banks? OK, yeah. <clears throat> OK, so. uh now, uh, I don't have a dogma against nationalization, to be very clear, because even on the economic side, people place me, tend to place me on the left uh, of uh, the spectrum when it comes to economics. But it's important to look at the context of Lebanon and how bank nationalization would, uh, what would it lead to? Mm. Uh, you know, when you're nationalizing banks that are so much deep in the red, they're very deep in the red, uh, and they're deep in the red towards depositors. So there are, what, uh, uh, $80 billion, $70, $80 billion worth of losses. So when you nationalize a bank or the banking sector, you're, you're also inheriting these losses as, a, as, a, as the state and by extension as a taxpayer. So uh, I would rather not want to inherit this mess as a taxpayer uh, the mess of these huge losses. So, uh, so nationalization or temporary nationalization of banks is one of many tools that one can use. Um, but in the con- in the Lebanese context, you will basically have to nationalize the whole sector. Yeah, 
But you'll also have to take ownership of the losses as a taxpayer. And as a taxpayer, quite frankly, I don't want to take ownership of these losses. That's something that has to be ring-fenced within the current banking sector and addressed uh, without without making the taxpayer shell out uh, the bill. Uh, So in the context of Lebanon, I mean, there's no point of nationalizing. I I mean, uh, the whole banking sector is bankrupt. Let's acknowledge that reality and start from a clean slate. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm being quite simplistic in this, but really uh, what I mean to say is that it's uh, uh, nationalizing the Lebanese banking sector, given its situation, is a horrible idea because you're offloading the losses of the banking sector onto the taxpayer. Should I extend that? Uh, has Other than... Other than- Forced closures of banks yes. in Lebanon that have that have happened. Yeah. Has there ever been that scenario? Uh, not in Lebanon. There's a, a scenario which is Iceland, which I use as a uh, role model uh, in one way or the other on to how to deal with uh, a fully bankrupt banking sector. What Iceland did is that they acknowledged d- during the 2008-2009 crisis, the whole banking sector was bankrupt. They acknowledged that. They basically let their banks fail uh, and uh, they've put the banks under temporary state administration until they were back on their feet again. Uh, So, uh, however, the challenge here is that in the Icelandic case, uh, the bank's main creditor or the depositors who took the hit were foreign depositors. They were Dutch depositors. They were British depositors. And they took the hit. In Lebanon, <laughs> the depositors are primarily Lebanese. So, uh, well, yes, that's also, a, the, yes, of course, yeah. But, but in general, they're local, uh, even though I would hope that a majority of them are ones who, would, who wouldn't feel sorry about if they have to take the hit. Uh, so uh, so it's, it's, I mean, when it comes to the banking sector, you're not really talking about restructuring a banking sector. You're talking about acknowledging the fact that it's gone and let's see what we could do right now. So basically rebuilding a new banking sector from scratch. Not na- to nationalize something, it has to exist. And as far as I'm concerned, it just doesn't exist. There's no financial sector. Those existing banks who did everything to obstruct the IMF plan, whatever other salvage plans, uh, what's the end game? What what do they hope for? What's the best case scenario for them? For them, uh, if I was a banker, a Lebanese banker, you know, uh, I would like the status quo to stay as is. No, that my bank as an entity remains intact, even though it's just there. It's an empty shell, yes. But uh, if I was a banker, that was the most I would hope for. The most I would hope for. Uh, However, let's zoom out a little bit uh, and think about what is for the public good. let us say in this magical scenario where you could address the losses of the banking sector head on, okay? So uh, Bank Aude no longer has losses, Blombank no longer has losses. Magically, these losses disappear, okay? Uh, 
and put yourself in a depositor shoes. I mean, most of you would be depositors or many of you would be depositors. Even if these losses are magically addressed, would you want to put a single penny in a bank that still has the same management that led to where it led to? Absolutely not. At least that's my view. Uh, Public trust in the banking sector in its current form has been shut down beyond repair. It's irredeemable. Uh, the only way I could think of a banking sector that the trust that, that the public trusts somewhat, and I would hope that the trust would have a healthy dose of skepticism, is a totally different banking sector with totally different ba- uh, totally different management, uh, totally different board of directors. Uh, rebranded also because perception also matters if you're just going to maintain Bank Audi, even though it's the same management. I'm using that as an example, merely. Yeah. Uh, people will say, oh, that's still Bank Audi. So perception also matters. So you want a totally new banking sector, which is, not, which is easier said than done, with totally new management. Uh, and even under that scenario, it will take the public, perhaps a generation, to regain trust in banks as institutions. Uh, the long-term scenario that happened in the 1980s, yeah. which fed into the 90s where inflation rose and things were not stable in terms of building trust in the yes. banking sector. What did it look like back then? Was it the same banks just trying to lure back lost customers that had taken their money elsewhere? Frankly, I didn't look into this. I, I, I should look into this. It'd be I, interesting to see if they... Yeah, yeah. yeah that's more of a story. It, it, it would be interesting to look into that. Or, or did a lot of money simply stay where it was? Post-hyperinflation? And, uh, perhaps, yes. Yeah. Perhaps, yes. Yeah. And and uh, uh, let's be clear, the banking sector during the Civil War was in, ironically, was in much better shape than it is right now. <laughs> there was still access to something. You could still access your money. Yeah, even though it went from 2 lira to 3,000. Yes, now if you had yeah. money in Lebanese lira, that got wiped out. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was. Did you have a question? No? Do you want to ask something? Uh, follow up? Sure. I have a, a, another but very uh, trivial question. And it's regarding the, uh, the exchange rate, dollar to the lira. Uh, and this uh, Bloomberg uh, platform that they announced. Uh, Sorry, I, uh, there's the, a lot of background noise, so I'm struggling. No, I'm saying the the exchange rate. Yes, th- that has been like so stable for so long. Yeah, uh, and uh, with the supposedly the fact that the Syrafa platform disappeared was supposed to be replaced by uh, Bloomberg. Yeah, what's the? How do you explain this, the stability and the, and how do you see the the coming period, especially considering okay. the geopolitical so, uh, situation? It's it's a combination of uh, relatively large inflows of foreign currency during a good tourism season, yeah? But also central bank intervention, what's called quasi-fiscal intervention, through Syrafa, where they, in convoluted ways, pay public sector salaries in US dollars, and somewhat that helps in maintaining the stability of the currency. But uh, how do I see it going forward? I think the juncture that we are in is a major test of this false sense of stability. Uh, Because a big part of the reason why the lira was somewhat stable was because of this tourism season that we had during the summer. Right now, 
under a scenario where you're deprived of a good tourism season during uh, Christmas, that's a major test for the stability of the Lebanese lira. Uh, there will be pressure on it, needless to say. Will that pressure manifest uh, through further devaluation, perhaps? I'm in no position to speculate. I don't think it's a good idea to speculate about the direction of the currency. But uh, but but clear in my view, the 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 status quo of this somewhat seemingly stable currency is not sustainable uh, and it's being put to test right now and only time will tell how sustainable this is I mean I would be surprised I mean Syrafa Bloomberg these are minor details I'm talking more about sort of the macro picture uh, replacing Syrafa with Bloomberg I mean, it's just a place, as of now, the way I'm seeing it is just you're changing the platform. <laughs> but uh, replacing Syrafa will, with Bloomberg will not necessarily mean that the central bank will stop its uh, quasi-fiscal operations of intervening in the currency market. This they haven't really dramatically changed. No, they're still more or less the same. There might have been less intervention owing to uh, a good tourism season, so less of a need to intervene. Uh, but uh, this is not. There's a serious test right now. You know, towards the end of the year, towards early next year, the stability or this sense of stability of the currency is put under test. You were talking about Iceland, um, and Iceland actually was struggling before, and they used the help of IMF, yes. but they knew that their um, strong point is tourism and nature tourism, so they invested in that, and they their government made some good relationship with other countries, and they made um, direct flights with a lot of uh, countries, and they made it a specific touristic destination for like mm. hiking and nature trips. And they made, they built like a huge uh, building in the middle of Reykjavik, the capital, and it's mainly all for touristic uh, use. And they have been doing great since then. And in the last 10 years, the, co the country is, re the, the people are still struggling now economically. Yes. But as a as a country, it's it's developing and it's getting like it's one of the fastest growing in the EU. That. Actually, hmm? it's still one of the fastest growing economies in the EU and, up until and now. Just because of tourism and what they're doing, do you think that's a great example? Since Lebanon is also relying on tourism, it's not it's, a great. It's, example. it's not a great example because we don't. We, I wish we had the geopolitical environment of Iceland, but we don't. <laughs> and tourism is very heavily sensitive to uh, geopolitics. Uh, so unless we could magically move Lebanon from where it is geographically to somewhere else, uh, I, I think that a model that is heavily dependent on tourism is uh, not viable for a country like Lebanon, given the context. No, and, 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 uh, and, and even if, uh, no matter what you do internally, the geopolitics will always be exogenous to you. It's very difficult to control it. And therefore, that will always have its toll on the tourism sector. Again, I repeat, the tourism sector will still be a main sector in any economy, in any way you could visualize the Lebanese economy. It shouldn't be the only one, and you shouldn't be too dependent on it. Maybe we could move Lebanon a little bit to the left. 
in the middle of the sea next to Cyprus, <laughs> and that will fix a lot of problems. <laughs> so perhaps just before Naeem, sorry, I'll ask one more feeding into what Ola said. I never think of Iceland mm. when I think of this country, but you said um, the geopolitical reality of Iceland, which is funny, is zero. Yeah, <laughs> they're left alone to deal with flights flying over. Yeah, they're minding their own business. Yeah, yeah. On occasion, there's Greenland gets some attention for tourism, and Iceland picks up from there and says, "No, no, 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 we're Greenland. <laughs> That's Iceland." Yeah. But that that kind of absolute uh, detached from a regional problem when it can't, and it comes back to platforms and political parties next round and a window of opportunity. Do you think that's one of the things that was not hammered down enough in the recent round and the recent window that we were talking maybe a bit too much about economics only? Mm. But the, what Ola is saying and what, you're, what you were saying earlier sounds really more like politics at its, most, at its, at its widest scale. Mm. Is that something that was not really discussed enough? Well, okay, uh, I, I don't buy into this uh, distinction between economics and mm, politics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, economics is, at the end of the day, uh, or economic outcomes are a result of political decisions that you make. Yeah. Uh, policy decisions are, in their essence, political decisions. Mm. So uh, attempting to disentangle between economics and politics is a futile exercise. Yeah. I mean, mm. even economics at its very core when it started off, it wasn't a technical discipline. It was right. a social science. Uh, they were primarily social scientists, philosophers. Uh, it was more political economy oriented and political comes before the economy part, yeah? yeah? So uh, so this idea of disentangling between the two, it just doesn't work. Mm. Uh, uh, any economic policy decisions have have to have in mind the political context or geopolitical context that you operate in. Yeah. Uh, if you're not cognizant of that, then uh, <clears throat> that, that then you know the wrong inputs are feeding into wrong policy decisions. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, Nine. Just one little fact about Iceland: um, women, and including the prime minister, as a woman, are on strike for better gender pay. Yes. Um, one. I don't think. It worked in Iceland because, well, whatever, like, the thing is, the, the basic thing, and there was, there was trust. Hey, these people, look, they deal with something. Oh, so basic rule of law. Okay, business comes when there's some basic logic of something. Which, but the, the, what I'm trying to go back to here is, we, it seems like we're stuck here and waiting for the regional whatever, whatever. It seems like we can't, the only thing we can imagine is just moving the country somewhere else. Like anything except we changing the core. Maybe, maybe we can, maybe we come to this when we give up of yeah. the people that are in power changing yeah. something. To, to, to be very clear, I certainly am not advocating for waiting for geopolitics to solve themselves. Quite the contrary. What, but what I am saying is that the only uh, vehicle that can play the role of playing, rather than a passive role, an active role of 
trying to make the country function despite the geopolitics is the state. That's the only vehicle that can do that. Uh, so uh, the only vehicle that should do that that can and should yeah, yes right yes yeah. so uh, I'm certainly not advocating for a passive role where you're waiting for Godot uh, waiting for the geopolitics to sort themselves out that is delusional particularly given that unfavorable geopolitics are the modus operandi of Lebanon Uh, so uh, what I am saying is, how can we make this country work despite the geopolitics? Waiting for the geopolitics to be favorable is delusional. So I'm certainly not advocating for a passive role, but rather an active role that tries to make the country work despite the geopolitics. We have time for one more question. Now, the table of friends should ask one question about Muhammad for Muhammad. <laughs> Oh, was there an oh the jump? Okay, we have time for two more. You guys are going to get the last one. It could be a collective one. <laughs> hey, my name is Tanner. I'm a political economist. Yeah, uh, and I wanted to ask you. So, given the role of tourism within Lebanon's economy, my impression is more so than a lot of other countries that are reliant on tourism. Lebanon's tourism is very heavily driven by the diaspora. Yes. So. Given that fact, how elastic is tourism in Lebanon to geopolitical events? Uh, given, like, in Jordan, for example, I talked to Jordanians. When the U.S. invaded Iraq, tourism went way down. They had a long track ahead of them to yes. get levels back to yes. what they had used to be. Egypt, it's the same story. Something happens in the region, tourism tanks, and it takes a long yeah. time to come back. In Lebanon, what does that look like? Okay, it's it's not very different, actually. So uh, given that uh, tourism is very heavily driven by the diaspora, uh, the way I would see it is that uh, in the uh, short term, short to medium term, yes, you will have a And again, we we meant we spoke about those three scenarios yeah. in a in a post Gaza uh, in a scenario where you have skirmishes going on and the remain, uh, them remaining contained, you will have a dip in the short term and it will start converging back uh, in the medium to long term. Uh, again, under the assumption that these skirmishes remain contained within this geographic region. How long it will take is proportionate to how long it will take people for it to sink in, basically. <clears throat> so basically, uh, it will take time for people to realize that, okay, sir, these are the regions that are... Uh, places in Lebanon that are safer and therefore we can travel and go stay there. Uh, <clears throat> so Lebanon is not particularly different compared to Jordan, compared to Egypt. You will have a dip in the short to medium term, followed by a reversion that is proportionate to uh, how long it will take for this new normal to normalize basically or to sink in. One question from everyone at this table. <laughs> Sara, please. I'm Sara from the group of friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's your okay. job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cheer. <laughs> okay. So a scenario question. Um, if you were the governor of the central bank, what would sorry, you Sorry, sorry, sorry. Can you repeat? If you were nowadays the governor of the central bank here, what would you do? I wouldn't want to be the governor, first of all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We'll baptize you first. <laughs> <laughs> What would I do? Well, governor in this political context? No, it really depends. 
Is it in this political context of political uh, dysfunction? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Yes. If, if, if it is in the context of political dysfunction, there's nothing that I can do. Because, because uh, now the right thing to do as the central banker would be to stop financing, the, uh, funding any fiscal activity, okay? Uh, so basically stop financing salaries, whatever, given the scarcity of resources that I have. I'm talking here purely from a central bank's perspective, not from a political or a political economy perspective. Uh, however, if I do that, given the current context, uh, uh, all the fingers will be pointed at me because it will be a very painful decision. Suddenly, uh, public sector pay will collapse. Uh, public sector employees will literally be starving for a while, assuming that the salary is the only source of income. Mm. And I will be on the receiving end of the blame, even though the main blame falls on the political dysfunctionality in the country. Uh, so is there something that can be done in a context of political dysfunctioning? Absolutely not. Uh, it has to be part and parcel of a broader sort of uh, political economy viewpoint with regards to how the political institutions will look like, uh, how the political system will look like. Any, any policy decisions that, that... You cannot think of any policy decision in isolation of this reality. So a new governor has nothing to their advantage? N absolutely nothing. You mm. could get the best central banker to ever exist, yeah. and they will fail miserably in the political con in Lebanon's local political context. Yeah. I'm not talking about the geopolitical context. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Are there any other questions before we wrap up? No? Did you have one? Did you have one? No? No? See, I was kind of hoping like for an obscure question, you know, like why two cats? <laughs> <laughs> why? <laughs> but that makes sense. Two cats, they keep each other company when exactly. you're Ah, there you go. And so I answered my own question. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that the thing, the, anyone going out in this climate to listen to this kind of subject, I know it takes maybe, maybe it takes more time than usual uh, to even persuade a guest to sit here. So I want to thank the audience for coming. I want to thank you, Muhammad, for joining. Pleasure. It's an honor always getting to know you better this way. Thank you. And through friendship, but... You really are a talented professor, and Thank you're able you. to do it in a natural setting like this or in a classroom. So I hope you stay at AUB. And going Thank back you. to the beginning, I'm glad Dublin is not home anymore. I'm glad yeah. Beirut is home. <laughs> so the next window of opportunity, I'd like to be here with you. Fingers uh, crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Thanks to Samir and Rayan. Thanks to Alias. And thanks to everyone. Good night. Thank you. We did it. So, yeah, we did.